Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5. I'm returning to a series I did last year at this time, approximately, on the Beatitudes. I'd like to finish that series, which was interrupted uh, during the time of COVID, and uh, at the beginning of it. <laughs> Sadly, we're still in that time, but uh, I wanted to return to that. And on this particular Sunday, this particular Beatitude seemed most appropriate for our times. The title of the sermon is Give Peace a Chance. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and verse 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the word of the Lord. In July 1969, in the midst of the Vietnam War and social unrest, John Lennon released the song, Give Peace a Chance. That song quickly uh, rose in the charts, on the Billboard charts. It also quickly became an anthem that was adopted by the anti-war movement at the time. And on November of that year, November 15th, about a half a million demonstrators came to Washington, D.C., and in that time of demonstration, they sang together that refrain that we all know that's going through your head right now. All we are saying is give peace a chance. About 1,935 years earlier, way back in the first century, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended a mount and a crowd gathered around him. And Jesus invited that crowd, and by extension the crowd here and at home, all who hear his voice, he invited them to experience human flourishing by speaking these words to them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. In this beatitude, Jesus calls us to what John Lennon called us to do. He calls us to give peace a chance. And don't we need to heed and hear that particular message right now, right now in this national moment? Don't we need these words of Christ? Blessed are the peacemakers. So let's consider them together this morning. Let's consider what Christ has to say to us through this beatitude. And my outline is simple. I first want to look at the cycle of conflict, and then secondly, the path to peace. The cycle of conflict and the path to peace. And we'll begin with the first one of those, the cycle of conflict. And let me tell you a story. To tell you a story that illustrates the devastating impact of the cycle of conflict that I want you to consider this morning. It's an Old Testament story. It's a, a story that takes place in the aftermath of the death of King Saul. David is finally able to assume his place, his rightful place on the throne. But not everyone is happy with that outcome. Not everybody wants to recognize David. And a political and military conflict ensues. And it's orchestrated by two guys, two men, Joab and Abner. And I want to tell you a little bit about those guys and what happens between them because it illustrates the point this morning. Let's take first Abner, 
who was Abner. Well, he was the leader of Saul's army. And his problem was that he backed the wrong person, right? He backed the wrong horse. His guy did not win. And now he was in trouble because he had resisted and fought against David. He was in a bad position. And so what he did was align himself with Saul's only surviving son, Ishbosheth. And he made Ishbosheth kind of his puppet. He took charge and he took Ishbosheth and they took control of northern part of Israel, resisting David's rule. Abner was a, uh, Eugene Peterson calls him, the consummate opportunist. He was a political guy, uh, a person of intrigue, one who knew how to move the levers of power in his favor. That was Abner. The guy on the other side, Joab, well, he was David's nephew. He was family, and he was a person who was kind of a, a brutal person. He's the one you know from the story of Bathsheba and, and, and his, her wife, Uriah. Joab is the one that makes sure Uriah is taken out, right? Joab is the person who does the political dirty deeds. He uses brute force. Eugene Peterson refers to him as the prototypical strongman. That's what we have here. They're both military leaders. Abner was the head of Saul's army, and, and, and of course, Joab, the head of David's army. Uh, but, and they both uh, were people who liked to use power and wanted political power for themselves. And so we know what kind of people we're dealing with. And we know the two of them are going to clash at a certain point, and that's exactly what happens. And that begins at a place called the Pool of Gibeon. Abner brings down the armies of the former armies of Saul under Ishbosheth. He brings them down onto David's territory on his border, threatening David, you know, doing the saber rattling. And then Joab goes out to meet them. And they meet at this place called the Pool of Gibeon. And the scripture says, you know, one side was on one side of the pool, and the other side was on the other side of the Pool of Gibeon. They sat facing each other. And here they are. And you know, based on who these guys are, that it won't end in peace. And it doesn't. They send out 12 men each, and they basically end up slaughtering each other, killing each other. All-out war breaks out between them. And Joab and the army of David eventually prevail in that conflict. But violence begets violence, and conflict begets conflict. And so it continues on. After that, Abner withdraws with his troops but then he is pursued by Joab's brother as the army is retreating. Azahel uh, pursues the army of Abner. And Abner warns Azahel, stop following me or else. But Azahel doesn't listen, so Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of a spear. He kills Joab's brother. And then Joab learns about that act of violence, that act of conflict. He becomes enraged. He pursues Abner and goes after him. And, and he's got Abner now. He faces him down. Joab has him surrounded. And Abner, in a moment of either abject fear or, or sanity, says this to Joab, Is the sword to keep devouring forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? And in a moment, Joab decides to stop. And he lets Abner go. 
And then in that moment, an opportunity for peace emerged. And David reached out to Abner. They began to have some fellowship together. They began to talk about diplomacy, about entering into a covenant of peace. And Joab is out on a mission, and he hears about what's happened while he was out, what David is doing, trying to make peace with Abner, and he's outraged by it. And so he sets off this little plan, and he brings calls Abner back, saying that David wants to talk to him, basically. And Joab meets him in the alleyway, at the gateway, and he stabs Abner in the stomach and kills him. And the scripture reads there in 2 Samuel 3.27, So he, Abner, died for shedding the blood of Azahel, Joab's brother. Now what's the moral of that story? It's quite simple, right? It's violence begets violence. That conflict begets conflict. That revenge begets revenge. It's a story about the cycle of conflict and the devastating impact of it when one turn of the screw deserves another. There's a famous scene in The Fiddler on the Roof where the Russian Jew named Tevya, the, the main character, is talking to a fellow Jew who's upset about the Russians who are coming in to say, you have to vacate your village, you need to be gone in three days. They give them an ultimatum, and Tevya's friend says, we should defend ourselves, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Tevya replies to that su suggestion with this line, very good, and that way the whole world will be blind and toothless. That's the devastating impact of a cycle of conflict. That's what it brings. It brings what Abner said it would bring. Do you not know that the end will be bitter? The cycle of conflict. That's what we learn from the story of Joab and Abner. It's a sad story. But it's a story that has been repeated over and over again throughout human history. And it's a story we saw repeated on January 6th, right? As a group of rioters desecrated the U.S. Capitol, engaged in acts of violence. And of course, that act of violence only led to further acts or threats of acts of more violence. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Leap Over the Wall, he has a chapter on Joab and Abner and their conflict, and the title of the chapter is The Boneheads. And he's right. They were boneheads, right? Because they didn't understand the devastating end of their actions. They could not escape the cycle of conflict. Do you not know the end will be bitter? And it was. That's the cycle of conflict. And in the Beatitudes, what Jesus does is call us to end that cycle. He calls us to end it. He calls us instead to pursue a path of peace, to end the cycle of conflict, and to pursue a better path, a path that leads not to a bitter end, but to human flourishing, to human thriving, and that's the path of peace. That's my second point, the path of peace. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, because sometimes we lose sight of this. It's important to remember that Jesus, when he ministered, he ministered in a time that was politically charged. I mean, there were political conspiracies everywhere, and it was a politically charged environment. Palestine, of course, was occupied by the Romans. Most Jews did not want that state of affairs to continue, and they had a variety of ways of responding to it. 
Some of them thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so they collaborated with the Romans as a means of dealing with it. Others withdrew from society. They went out into the hills and into the caves, and they focused solely on devotion to God, and they disengaged entirely. And yet there was a third group, a group that decided the only way to fix this is through armed rebellion against Rome, and they were known as the Zealots. The Zealots. And that word, of course, has lived on throughout history as a label for those who would seek to change things through violence. This was the environment, this was the context into what Jesus preached this sermon. He went up on this mountain, a crowd gathered around him in a politically charged environment, and you know, the Romans were watching this. What is this guy going to say? And the zealots, they were also watching this. What would Jesus say? Many of them wanted Jesus to make the big speech, right? To advocate conflict, to rail against the emperor, and to go ahead and name names, to join in it all. But those who wanted such things were really disappointed that day. Those who wanted you know, blood in the water, they didn't get it because Jesus instead gave them this. At that very moment when tensions were high in a politically charged environment, this is what Jesus said to those who were gathered there and to those who are gathered here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In that moment, in a charged moment, Jesus said, stop. It's time to break the cycle of conflict. And it wasn't just in that moment. It was ever present in his ministry over and over again when those wanted to, who wanted to co-opt Jesus into acts of rebellion and violence, he said no. Think about the time when they brought the coin to Jesus, when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar, and is it right, is it wrong, should believing Jews do that? And you, it's hard for us to grasp the subtlety of what he was being asked to uh, address in that moment. He was being asked, I just listened to a lecture about this this very week, about that context from uh, Gary Berg, uh, who was teaching at, at Calvin Theological Seminary, he talked about that very moment. And what Jesus was being asked to do is to endorse a tax revolt, to basically endorse an armed rebellion of, of, against the government. All he had to do was give a wink and a nod to it. And instead he does this. He says, give to the emperor the things that are the, um, are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. He was no zealot. He said, no, not interested. And his arrest you remember when Peter drew the sword, trying to stop the powers. What did Jesus say? Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Not interested. And then Jesus later, when he's questioned by Pilate, questioned about whether he's an insurrectionist, whether he's seeking to set up a kingdom, do a coup d'etat, if you will. He says this to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here, not interested. Jesus was no zealot. He was a peacemaker. 
And he called his followers, he calls us to break that cycle of conflict, to pursue a path of peace. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for we Christians here in this very moment? When I planned out this sermon a while back, I thought I would be talking about inner church conflict, uh, interpersonal conflict, but uh, it seems at this moment the better question is, what do we do as Christians in this national moment? When tensions are high, when we're in a politically charged environment, what should we do now? How do we Heed the words of Jesus in this very moment. How do we give peace a chance, if you will? So my application this morning is tied particularly to this moment, particularly to our role as Christians, what we should be doing right now in this moment. I have just three points of application. They all begin with our three recommendations for Christians in this moment to pursue the path of peace, to break the cycle of conflict, to listen to Jesus and what he's saying to us. Three things. The first is this. We need to repudiate. We need to repudiate right now. We need to repudiate any and all connection between our faith and those who advocate or incite violence. Among the many reprehensible things that occurred on January 6th, the one that grieved me most was seeing signs and symbols of my faith being perverted in the name of violence, being misused. As peacemakers, as followers of Christ, we should be repulsed by such things, by a perversion of our faith, and we should repudiate that. And so I repudiate it. This has nothing to do with Christianity. I want to be unequivocal in that. I do not believe that the cross of Jesus Christ is a symbol of white supremacy. But if I want people to take me seriously when I say that, to have credibility, I best go out of my way to condemn anyone who tries to associate it with such movements. We need to be clear in a voice of repudiating. Peacemaking requires a repudiation of violence as a means of resistance, and repudiation should be particularly strong when such violence is connected to our faith. Let it be known, we do not approve. Secondly, we need to rehabilitate. We need to rehabilitate. The honest thing is our brand has been tarnished. Christianity has been tarnished. And we have been wounded by this, and some of that is largely self-inflicted. And so we have a lot of work to do as Christians to rehabilitate our brand. And I'm not trying to be crass and talking about it that way, but it is true. I want you to think about, you know, what a company would think if their images, their logo, whatever it was, is bandied about in such activity. We need to rehabilitate that. And a good place for us to begin that rehabilitation process is to reclaim for ourselves, for Christianity, political independence. Political independence. Christianity is not an ideology, a political ideology. It is a theology. 
Christianity is not a political movement. It is a religious movement. I'm not talking about disengagement. I'm just talking about discerning engagement. If you want to engage in the realm of politics, if we are to do that as Christians, we need to do so with discernment. We cannot be in the pocket of any party. We need to declare with conviction that Jesus is not a Republican and that Jesus is not a Democrat either, but that Christians can be both. They can vote for either party. Perhaps one of the silver linings in all of this mess is that we reconsider that. We can reconsider the idea of the importance of decoupling our faith from any political party, so to speak, that we could perhaps in that process rediscover our prophetic voice, our role as peacemakers, our ability to be arbiters. If we're not owned in this process, if we're not serving one party or the other, perhaps we can speak to both of them prophetically because they both need to hear the voice of Christ. We need to rehabilitate. And thirdly, and most importantly, and most directly for all of us this morning, each one of us, including myself, thirdly, we need to be responsible. We need to be responsible. Jesus put the responsibility for peacemaking, not on the government, right? Not on the government, but on his believers, on his followers. We are responsible for it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus was speaking to his church, his people, those who desired to be his disciples. Jesus made peace between God and humanity. Only he could do that. Only he could tear down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and make one people out of two. On the grand scheme of redemptive history, only Jesus could make peace between God and humanity. But when it comes to peace between and among humans, Jesus said, that's on you. Blessed are the peacemakers. You want to thrive? Make peace. Peacemaking is part of the Christian's calling. It is our individual and personal responsibility. Listen to Paul when he writes in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Listen to his words. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Hear this. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. He goes on, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As far as it depends on you, Peacemaking is not someone else's responsibility. It's not the adversary's responsibility. It's our responsibility. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably. That means the responsibility for breaking the cycle of conflict is our responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's mine. And what that means is we need to stop acting like children at a playground. 
Well, the other side did it, so why shouldn't we? Now is our chance to shove it down their throat and get our revenge. That's what we hear. What does that do? It just keeps the cycle going. This means we need to stop rewarding politicians for extremism. We're partly responsible because we encourage our politicians to act like boneheads. We do it every time we click on those emails. When you get that email, right? Give me money or it's the end of the world. If you give money to that, you are perpetuating that cycle of conflict. You're rewarding people for it. Send money, stop the enemy. And believe me, that falls on both parties. Third, this means we need to stop entertaining and propagating apocalyptic views about politics. Right? There is political apocalyptism everywhere. This has been a growing tendency for a while. It used to be we would debate policies and policy differences. Now it is apocalyptic stuff, right? If other person wins, it's the end of the world. Charles Krauthammer described this back in 2017. He wrote this. But the worst thing, and I think this is overlooked, the two parties, the two ideologies, you might say, speak about the politics in apocalyptic terms. If the other guy wins, it's the end of the republic. If the other guy wins, it's the end of the world. That's the language, the ideology, the rationale of terrorists, the fate of the world hangs on this. And it's up to leadership to say these are policies. This is not the fate of the republic. We hear too much rhetoric all the time, serving to radicalize people. It is the equivalent of political clickbait, and we as Christians should not be clicking on it. We're responsible for the leadership we get. Somebody has to break the cycle of conflict. And the way you do that is not by crushing your enemy, when you have the opportunity to do so, but rather by ending the cycle of escalation and by binding up wounds. At his second inaugural address in 1865, at the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln gave a masterful and mercifully short inaugural address. Think about that moment. Think about what would happen to him just days later, weeks later. Think about the politically charged environment. What did Lincoln do? He chose to be a peacemaker. With malice toward none. With charity for all. With firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves 
and with all nations. One of the most telling things about character is what you do when you have the moral high ground. And it matters what you do with it. Joab had the moral high ground. Abner had killed his brother. He had every right to take revenge against Abner. But he also had an opportunity to allow peace to flourish rather than to continue the cycle of conflict. And he made his choice. What choice will you make in this moment? What choice will you make? We're going to all have to get together here again someday. And here's a little secret. Our church is purple. Thank God for that. We need to learn to live together in the church, in our nation. We need to learn to be peacemakers. Somebody has to break the cycle of conflict. And Jesus says that somebody is you and me. We Christians. So here's my admonition. Let's not be boneheads. Rather, let's promote human flourishing. Let's listen to Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God.